The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Welcome. Thank you for joining the program today. I'm Carol Bossert, and and you're listening to Museum Life. And today I have a a great guest. I'm so excited uh, to uh, finally be able to talk with Aaliyah Brown. Uh, Our schedules have just not uh, uh, coincided until this point, and so I am really excited about having this opportunity to talk with uh, Aaliyah. Uh, Many of uh, you who are listening, I know, know Leah uh, very well. Uh, she, I love this. She describes herself as a museum maven and scholar activist. Uh, she writes extensively on issues of, about race and inclusion and uh, and gender. And she's the co-founder of two Twitter chats uh, at uh, BLK Twitter Storians and also at Museums Respond to Ferguson. Uh, and I will stop there. Uh, and except to say that uh, one of the things I love, Aaliyah, about your writing is that you bring both a personal as well as an academic underpinning to, the, to your writing. And it is extremely uh, compelling, but also very clear. It gives me a good vocabulary for talking about some of these these issues, and so uh, I'm sure that I will learn a lot more today in talking with you. Uh, Aaliyah, thank you for being on the program today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, and thank you for your kind words. I really appreciate that. Oh, great. Well, as I, I didn't, I gave only a little smidgen of your career trajectory. And um, so I think it would be uh, helpful to ground all of our listeners in our talk today, if you could just share a little bit about that trajectory, and also highlighting some of the most influential events that have uh, affected you and um, are affecting your approach to your current work. Sure. Um my museum trajectory started, I think, in, well, it started as a museum visitor. So uh, my mom uh, definitely exposed me and my siblings to museums fairly early. So I was very accustomed to being in that space. And then in undergrad, I had a number of really great internships. Um, but I think the most uh, 
influential experience that I had was my first job as a curator at the National Afro-American Museum and Cultural Center in Wilberforce, Ohio. Um, the, this particular museum opened uh, during the time of the Black Museum Movement, and it's also specifically known for uh, its kind of it's an exhibition from Victory to Freedom, 1945 to 1965. So uh, it, was, it was a pretty substantial experience for me to start my career there. Um, it was also a substantial experience because when I started, it was actually closed uh, due to financial uh, hardships and also mold infestation. So I had a great... <laughs> amount of responsibility as a young curator just finishing my master's. I uh, was responsible for relocating and cleaning 800 objects from the permanent exhibition. Um, I was also like part of the team that was looking at how to reframe the institution um, so that it resonated with local people and Ohioans more. So there was a lot going on, and I realized that I wanted to do something beyond curating. I, was, I became very interested in museum leadership. I was interested in how we shape missions, how we shape research agendas, and then also um, how we shape the people in our institutions, how we develop their skills so that they can uh, be the best museum professionals that to offer the public something great. So um, that's kind of my trajectory, or at least my um, most influential experience. And after all of that reflection, I realized that I had to do more. And that led me to pursuing my doctorate in public history from Middle Tennessee State University. Um, I chose that program because it was so interdisciplinary. So. Uh, the program allowed me to have a minor field in nonprofit administration, which I thought was incredibly important for becoming a museum leader. In addition to um, my major fields, which was 20th century African-American history, because I felt like developing not only practically, but developing more intellectually gave me a, a stronger voice and it gave me a stronger perspective that I felt like the museum felt needed. So um, that's where I am. And currently I'm a visiting scholar at Michigan State University Museum and I'm finishing my dissertation. Fabulous. Yes, we were just talking about before the show, I was whining about some things in my life, but uh, you were you were saying that you were just working on a, uh, uh, a chapter of your dissertation and getting ready to go to the New England um, uh, Museum Association meeting next week and, and uh, speaking with Linda Norris. And I, I'm sure that uh, listeners who are going to be able to attend that uh, conference will have a wonderful opportunity to hear you and uh, Linda speak together about, I'm assuming, leadership issues so that will be wonderful yes it's actually a great opportunity to work with Linda um, she is a well-known consultant in our field for, with the uncatalogued museum and we're presenting on Friday November 6th um, bringing museums respond to Ferguson bringing race to the forefront so what we're looking at is having the audience 
you know, work through some of these issues and develop the skills to address race and understand it as a forefront issue. That's fabulous. I'm sorry that I won't be able to attend. I'll be at the museum uh, computer network. And since we're plugging our, our uh, programs, I'll be uh, uh, spe- doing an Ignite talk earlier that week with uh, Alyssa Frankel from the Holocaust Museum and looking forward to that as well. Um, yeah. you know, uh, I know our listeners um, have, I've had uh, several people on the show, Melanie Adams, Samuel Black, uh, Gretchen Jennings, uh, Adrian Russell, um, uh, talking about the uh, museum response to Ferguson, uh, both first as a, uh, as a, as a blog, a uh, series of, of uh, a blog letter that was uh, signed on by, by several people. And then more importantly, I think, and I found them very interesting, the uh, Twitter chats that you have co-hosted uh, on the at museums respond to Ferguson uh, following up on, uh, on you know, one of the major issues that uh, occurred a year ago uh, that has brought race uh, to the forefront mm-hmm. in a, uh, uh, I think, a stronger way than perhaps it has in the last uh, few few years. I I have uh, heard several people over the last month or two refer that to this as sort of like the 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 next uh, civil rights movement. Um, you know, things were not settled in the '60s and or the '70s, and now we are we're facing the realities of of that. What what have you learned? Um, I guess about uh, hosting this uh, this Twitter chat. So what I've learned is that I think the museum professionals and even the American public does not understand race issues and the history of race in the United States broadly. Um, And what I mean by that is initially when there were, with the initial talks about Ferguson, uh, people identified it as an isolated situation. They identified it as a headline. And um, Ferguson, it was a very unfortunate situation, but it was not an isolated situation. It was not a headline. it actually occurs in a continuum of state-sanctioned violence against black and brown people. There's a long history of that. And I think that that's part of our framework that we operate with in Museums Respond to Ferguson, that you know, we're not just responding to Ferguson, we're responding to Ferguson as an event that has happened in a long continuum of state-sanctioned violence against against black and brown people. So I guess that I've learned that um, I think either people were ignoring it or they were blind to it, but Ferguson certainly isn't an isolated situation. Um, We've seen Ferguson many times in this country. I I agree with you, and I I think that uh, in following the the Twitter chats and and other uh, writings, I think it uh, you and others have made a very clear uh, argument for this uh, uh, systematic uh, uh, prejudice. This uh, and and I think 
to me, and feel uh, feel free to um, uh, to disagree with me, it uh, in reading some of the comments. Uh, while there are many people uh, in the museum profession who are beginning are using this as an opportunity to uh, understand and to become more aware and more conversant in the vocabulary of of race uh, and systematic uh, prejudice that uh, sort of grips our country. Um, I'm also seeing that there are many museums that per, you know, are saying, well, this is not our problem. You know, we're an art museum and this was a history issue or we're a, you know, we're a science museum and this has nothing to do with, with science. Are you finding that as well? Um, you know, I found that initially about a year ago, there were a lot of people or a lot of museums I found they were finding ways not to be involved in the conversation. But I think that has changed slightly. I think people are seeing that this issue really affects every sector of our lives. And um, even with art museums, I think they're understanding that uh, there's plenty of art addressing race. And then also our practices are, are a way to address race. So, for example, our hiring practices, our collecting practices, um, our outreach practices, those are also all ways that any museum can address race and race inequities. I think that's a that's a very good point and one that has been raised again on on this show, but uh, in the uh, uh, in the Twitter sphere and other places with uh, with the uh, uh, some of the museum workers uh, speak projects, and I think it is showing um, a really interesting. Um, uh, well, I guess the word uh, uh, Portia Moore has taught me is intersectionality right. of all, all of these all of these issues, and uh, I I suppose we should define intersectionality, uh, and I'm sure that that's a word that you're going to define when you uh, uh, do your program at NEMA as well. Could you just help? You know, some of our uh, international uh, listeners may not quite understand what we're we're talking about when we use that term. So when we use the term intersectionality, we're, it's, it's really a framework. We're looking at different levels of oppression or different levels of inequity. So, uh, for example, if we're looking at wage inequity or wage gaps, that's one level of uh, an injustice. But we also have to look at how that affects different people. And we know that um, there are wage gaps, but they also wage gaps also affect black and brown people. They also affect women. They also affect you know all different types of people, able-bodied people versus um, people who aren't able-bodied people. So uh, intersectionality seeks to look at all the different subgroups that certain inequities or that certain injustices, how they affect those people. Thank you. Uh, that I think that 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 helps the discussion as as well um, to understand the sort of the underpinnings of uh, of this. You know, I 
I want to delve a little more deeply into uh, the issues of museum and race, but uh, I before I do that, I think let's go ahead and take a break so that we don't um, uh, break up the flow of conversation, uh, if that's okay with you. Um, sure. So, wonderful. Uh, we will be back in a moment. This is uh, Carol Bossert for Museum Life. As always, uh, thank you so much for listeners who touch base with me uh, every week, uh, sharing their ideas and thoughts about the show, as well as, as uh, issues that are are facing them and they feel that need to be addressed on the show. I am so many of the uh, guests who are appearing on the show these days are coming from your recommendations and I really, really appreciate that. And you can always contact me at carol.bossard at verizon.net or uh, on Twitter. My uh, my Twitter name is is uh, MuseWrite. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for your continued support about the show. We will be back in a moment. Um, more with Aaliyah Brown uh, after this break. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Carol Bossert established CB Services, LLC, because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content, and at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Are you ready for an anything-goes, hour-long foray into politics, pop culture, and societal tribulations? Then look no further than Between the Synapse with host Mark Tobin. Each show features nationally or internationally prominent guests discussing topics that go beyond the usual daily news, sometimes even way beyond. It's a weekly fast-paced hour that you won't want to miss. Call in to join the party. Between the Synapse airs live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back 
to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossard, and I'm here uh, talking with Aaliyah Brown today. And uh, while we were on break, while you were listening to commercials, uh, Aaliyah and I were were, uh, talking a little bit. I was sharing with her that uh, uh, yesterday I attended uh, an ICOM conference, Intercom, the first time ICOM has uh, held held one of these uh, leadership conferences in the United States. It... uh, very interesting uh, group of speakers. Elaine Human-Gurian spoke, and I'm sure that uh, program will, will be on the uh, ICOM website soon. And uh, one of the, uh, talking about the importance of museums in civil society being places for all people. But as I was sharing with uh, Alea, uh, I was looking around the room, uh, many friends and colleagues of mine were around the room, and uh, while there were several people of color uh, in attendance, I uh, I noticed that those people of color were all coming from different from other countries. Mostly, you know, the black faces were from from uh, museums in Africa. I did not see uh, one U.S. black face in the audience, and um, I think that was a real. It's, it continues to be the wake-up call for me uh, that in our profession we you know they're they're just uh, we talk about race we talk about equality we talk about equity but we're not talking to the people you know so many people that need to be in the room aren't in the room uh, do you can you help me understand that a little bit Aaliyah? Um <laughs> I don't know that I understand it. <laughs> But I can offer my observations. Uh, what's particularly frustrating to me is that there are just a number of great black and brown colleagues that I've had um, since being an intern all the way till now. And they don't end up in the museum field. Um, there's also, I, I didn't mention earlier that I did my undergraduate at an HBCU, which is a historically black college or university. And I got great exposure to museums and museum training by being there. And um, I'm not sure if people know in museums, but there are quite a few uh, undergrad um, graduate certificates and even some graduate programs at historically black colleges and universities and I'm always wondering why don't these people get hired Uh, I often hear that oh we look for African Americans but we don't find them and I'm assuming that they're not looking in the right places because there are all of these training programs set up uh, specifically for uh, black and brown people, but that often doesn't translate to a career in the field. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think museums have to be more uh, proactive about their search, and they have to be more genuine about including or, or hiring black people. So, but it's an ongoing problem. Yes, uh, I, I, uh, 
I'm aware, uh, I've become even more aware of it as I've, I've, many of my listeners know, I started out my museum career at the Newark Museum uh, working for uh, Mary Sue Sweeney Price and uh, have was there nine years, one, nine fabulous years uh, in which there was uh, uh, several of the senior uh, leadership, uh, members of the senior leadership team uh, were black and brown. Um, and you know, I know Adrian Russell uh, has, has shared that, you know, when you walk into a museum and the only uh, black or brown faces you see are the guards or the cleaning people, that really gives you an impression about what the museum was like. And Newark, uh, there were black and brown faces in almost every department and also on the board of trustees. And I just assume that that's how museums worked. And it has, has continued to be a shock to me. Uh, that 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 has has not occurred, and as you say, um, so many there are so many museum programs uh, that there just seems to be a break in the pipeline. I'm I'm wondering if that has to do with uh, col- you. You were talking earlier about collections policies and and what we collect and how we collect and what kind of exhibits that do we make do. Do you think that that uh, people, uh, uh, black and brown people, just get tired of fighting the fight? Uh, yeah. You know, I think what happens is that, you know, even if you do get uh, hired into to working into a job that you are particularly excited about, the environments are not conducive. Um, you know, I think there is there's two parts to hiring or making the museum feel less homogenous. One is hiring more people of color. Two is also creating environments that make, make sure that everyone understands how to operate in a new, uh, a new workspace. So that means that these people are going to be coming with ideas that um, former, the colleagues probably aren't used to. They're going to be coming with different trainings. They're going to be coming with different socioeconomic issues. And the museum space has to be prepared for that. That doesn't mean that they're bringing um, things things that are wrong necessarily. But um, it does mean that the museum field is going to have to broaden their understanding of what it means to be in a diverse space. And oftentimes that's very different from what the homogenous space of museums looks like. Yes. Uh, I Thank you for, for describing that well. Um, and, and I guess one of the things, and you and I started to talk about this, it's, it's an area that, that I st- I continue to struggle with as a uh, as an interpretive planner uh, and uh, have in um, reflecting on several of the exhibits that I've worked on um, uh, over the years the the vocabulary that gets used is is awkward you know we're always talking about multiple voices or we're talking about uh, diversity of voice 
But what what ends up happening is that we then sort of polarize things. We have, okay, well, this is the mainstream or this is the right way of, of interpreting something. Uh, and then we have this alternative way of interpreting something. And that could be, um, you know, an alternative uh, form of history or it could could be the way um, indigenous peoples look at a, at a topic. And I just find that so very polarizing. Uh, and... I'm wondering if, you know, in the work that you're doing in public history, how can that, you know, sort of that emerging scholarship in public history and the vocabulary that we use, how can that help uh, inform uh, museum exhibitions and, and museum practices so that we don't have these, these polarizing conversations or presentations, I guess? Sure. I think the thing that has to happen is... Um, museum professionals have to look outside of the traditional resources that they've been using. Um, they have to start reading scholarship and narratives that centralize Black voices. They have to start participating in community events that centralize Black experiences. Um, or even online and uh, the digital space in Raven Ruffin actually at Museum Next gave a wonderful presentation about these subversive spaces that black people are creating and um, even beyond race, uh, people in the LGBTQ community, um, all sorts of, or even uh, the activist museums workers speak Using those sources is looking outside of the traditional narrative. It's broadening the narrative. It's showing that there are other voices. And I think looking at work created by these communities is one of the first steps to, you know, making sure that the American narrative is not just a white narrative. Aliyah, you were you were talking about uh, several ways and, and a number of resources that are available uh, to museum professionals or anyone who is beginning to uh, want to expand the uh, the traditional narrative, so so to speak. And you know, one of the the challenges that that I've seen in that is. Uh, Oftentimes, as curators, and I'm speaking as a uh, as a curator um, myself. That's how I started out in the field. Uh, I organized things. I looked at things the way I was taught. Now that's fine and good when you're just you know maybe two years out of your doctoral work, but you know it gets a little thin uh, if you you move beyond that. Uh, and so I'm wondering um, how is sort of the the research area of public history beginning to interface with say a more traditional historic narrative and influencing that and broadening it. Well, um, I think part of expanding the narrative is looking at narratives that centralize Black voices, looking at scholarship written by Black people, um, looking and experiencing experiences curated and architecturally designed by Black people, and 
what happens when we do that or when we choose to look at these things is that we understand that there's a much broader narrative um, than the great white male history that we're often presented with. So I think it's important to look at, we we should start by centralizing black narratives. And also when we do this, we realize that black scholars, um, black historians, black public historians and museum professionals have been doing this work. So in a sense, we're giving them, we're understanding that they have been central to helping the rest of the field and the rest of America to understand race. Help me understand a little bit more what you mean um, by centralizing black, black history. So when I say centralizing black history, um, I've often joked that sometimes when I go and see exhibits, I see what I call a Negro corner. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, you look at the the exhibit space and you see, you understand like the narrative and the main point that they're trying to get across and display through material culture and interactives and all that. And then there's like this one section on African-Americans like, oh, like, I could just imagine the curator saying, oh, we have to do something on African-Americans. Let's put it here. And in that way, we're really reducing the scale of um, the, we're, we're reducing the scale of the African-American experience. So it becomes like this insignificant monolith kind of on the outskirts of the main point that they were trying to make. And I think when we centralize black voices, we understand that the black experience is not a monolith, but we respond and react to, to things differently. Um, and we can only learn about that through works that centralize black voices that are specifically about black people and their perspectives and how they fit in with the larger uh, continuum of United States history. I love that phrase. I don't know if I can uh, bring bring myself to say it out loud. It <laughs> seems edgy, but I understand what you mean completely, and I see it so often in natural history and science projects where there's the, oh, we've got to find the woman scientist. Yeah, and, yeah. Oh, we gotta it's find the same concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, Eli Whitney uh, seemed to be the, you know, the only black um, inventor in uh, 1870, so... Uh, <laughs> I, I I think what it what it uh, it points out to me is a real need for increased scholarship within the museum profession, and I you know that sounds like such a silly thing to even have to say, but uh, as so many of our museums move toward wanting to become more de- say uh, destinations or exhibits that uh, have such a, uh, a narrowly focused message or uh, experience that 
there sometimes I'm finding that that it's sort of uh, the the time needed to do the scholarship has been uh, reduced to the point that you know any old secondary source will do. Yeah, and that's also a part of centralizing um, black narratives and black history is that there has to be some due diligence. Um, you know, there there has there it takes a tremendous amount of time to look at what it means to be black in this country because it's very different depending on um, possibly where you live, what region of the country you live in, um, your sexuality, your socioeconomic status, where you went to school. So, you know, it's not something that you can discover in six months. And it's certainly not something that you can have a checklist of 10 points, like how to talk to black people. There's no such thing. And I think um, that was one of the challenges when museums responded to Ferguson first started. I think a lot of museum professionals tuned in thinking, oh, I'll finally get the list. I'll finally get the 10 points that I need to do to effectively talk to black people. And there's absolutely no such thing. Um, As I've mentioned often in my writing and when I've done other speaking, it's a a journey. It's a lifelong journey. Uh, Race is an alive construct. So that means that we'll never be done talking about it there will always be something new to learn because it's an alive concept it's not dead so so yeah it's it's um and I know that's difficult because as you know as museum professionals we we have many constraints um time as well as money so it's very hard but uh understanding race has to be an institutional value I Yes, um, I I think you're right, and I think it has to be a well articulated uh, museum value, and that I I feel is what, uh, and certainly in my own um, uh, journey uh, in listening to you, reading your work, uh, as well as others listening to the museum response to Ferguson uh, chat. Uh, I am uh, I am learning uh, so much more and more things to to ask uh, and more things to think about. But I think you're right that the key element here is time and wanting to put in that time uh, and feeling that that is the is the priority. Whether the exhibit is specifically about a uh, an issue having to do with race or whether it's about something else entirely, but asking those questions and saying, you know, is it is is this really the is this the complete history? Is this um, you know, or is this just the history I learned when I was in the fifth grade? Um, yeah, and you know, um, that that's an important thing to interrogate, like how we understand history. And then also, we can't be satisfied with just having um, black people in a museum. We ha- I think we would do ourselves a better justice, like the public and ourselves, to understand, as I was saying earlier, that this the experience is so diverse and for us to just stop at like 
like you were pointing out earlier, like Eli, Eli Whitney, um, for us to just say, oh, he was a scientist and he was here. We don't get into the complexities of his life. We don't get into the stories that may resonate with people across time and space and race. So, you know, we do ourselves a disservice by just simply inserting African-Americans without really interrogating, looking for what makes their experience so valuable. Very well said. And with that, we are going to take our second break. I, I promise this time this is the official break. And uh, we, will be, <laughs> we will be back in a moment more with uh, Aaliyah Brown. Uh, thank you for listening. And uh, we will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Carol Bossert established CB Services, LLC, because she believes in the societal value of museums. Exhibitions are a primary way that museums deliver this value, providing places for exploration, renewal, and conversation. Good exhibitions begin with good content. And at CB Services, we are all about the content. CB Services helps organizations identify, shape, and document the ideas and stories that form the foundation of a successful exhibit. We provide tools that help our clients make good decisions throughout the exhibition development process and get the most out of collaborations with architects and exhibit designers. CB Services offers half-day and day-long workshops to get staff, boards, and communities ready for an exhibition project. Call today to schedule a workshop. CB Services also offers a one-hour free consultation to organizations no matter where they are in the exhibition development process. Visit carolbossertservices.com. Reach out to Carol through Twitter or LinkedIn or call her directly at 240-432-7712. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. I'm here talking today with Aaliyah Brown. And uh, at before the last uh, break, we were talking about, uh, Aaliyah was actually uh, sharing with us the importance of uh, in, uh, not only including uh, the, uh, the black narrative into uh, uh, the overall narrative as if, you know, we're sort of taking one little peg and putting it into a pegboard, but really thinking very critically uh, and making uh, about uh, the complex narrative that we are trying to, uh, to communicate and actively seeking out resources that are available uh, to help 
uh, create that uh, broader and more more inclusive narrative. And I am sure that if uh, listeners out there who says, I have no idea where to begin to look, I bet you could start with Aaliyah. Yeah, and you know, um, yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. But there are plenty, especially if you're looking online, um, Adrian Russell, Russell, her blog has a, a tremendous amount of resources. Um, even just searching the hashtag Museums Respond to Ferguson, I'm sure that will lead you to plenty of other articles. Uh, there's also the Museums Respond to Ferguson storifies. And then we're just in a really fertile time of people writing about race and culture. So um, even ta Coates, a lot of his work is great. Um, he's a journalist, but there's a lot of intersections between what he's writing about and the work that we do here at Museums. Um, Jamila Lameau, and she's a, also a journalist and very active on Twitter. So there's a great amount of people um, that are speaking on these issues and there's a lot of resources. So I, I would say even just starting with the simple Google search, if you don't remember any of those people's names, um, <laughs> starting with the Google search will yield you, you know, a lot of information. And then um, I guess just because I'm a historian, I'm always thinking about how, like all of the great works that we have that came from the past. So I'm thinking about W.E.B. Du Bois. I'm thinking about Balt, James Baldwin. I'm thinking about um, Ida B. Wells. We have so much, like just a, a stockpile of work and really great work, um, well-written and really insightful work that we can we can access to understand race. So I, I think the problem isn't that there isn't enough, but people often don't use it. That's a, a very good, uh, very good point, and leads me into um, what, what may be our the final question uh, for our discussion today, and. Uh, as uh, as I introduced you uh, today, I I use the words that you use to describe yourself, and one of those words is scholar activist. And we've talked a lot now about the scholarship part. I'm wondering if you could share with us a little bit more of the um, the activism part, and perhaps give us some perspective about uh, you know how how movements and how activism moves us forward or or become more aware uh, it seems that uh, we seems to have been in a, a period of sort of well I don't want to call it backsliding but uh, perhaps a plateau in understanding for the last uh, oh say 10 years and now we're on another roll and is that is that sort of how these things work um yes so I'll give you uh, for, I'll first give you a little bit of background of how I began to in- identify myself as a scholar activist. So uh, I, for undergraduate, I went to Coppin State University Honors College, and my advisor there was Dr. Cynthia Neverdon Morton. Uh, she was heavily involved in 
desegregating public spaces while she was a student. And I became tremendously inspired by that. Um, she was, she helped desegregate uh, like movie theaters and libraries and uh, different spaces in Baltimore and DC. But, um, she, so she eventually went on to get her doctorate. And what I learned from her is that her, her community activism, as well as her scholarship, was always focused on how do I contribute to my community? How do I move this movement forward? And that's kind of the grounding of my education, also my practice. And so I... Um, adopted a very similar outlook. I, I definitely participate in Black Li- the Black Lives Matter movement, but I also produce scholarship that's useful for them. So the, when they decide what actions they want to take, when they want to decide how they want to approach different ideologies or how they went to talk to different leaders. Um, they look at scholarship. And I, I hope that I'm one of the people that they continue to look to for um, this information, for understanding the history of social movements and the causes, the effects, uh, what was effective, what wasn't. So... These two ideas, scholarship and activism, move in in tandem. Um, You need one to understand the other. And I think it's it's been a great place for me to be in. I I think that that's... Well, that is always, as I said at the beginning of the show, that's one of the things that's, that has drawn me uh, to your work because I, I can... Uh, uh, whether I... Un- it, I can gain access uh, to to things through uh, through an academic lens. Uh, sometimes it 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 helps to have a little distance uh, before I, I internalize things. But uh, I, I'm wondering if uh, it just as you were talking, it occurs to me there's a movie that has just come out, and I'm hoping to see it this weekend called Suffragists, uh, Suffragists, mm-hmm. and uh, about the uh, women's movement in England and that it uh, was not just uh, like they show it in Mary Poppins with you know women in great big uh, floppy hats uh, you know holding banners that it was actually quite um, uh, quite violent uh, at times and I'm and and I'm always struck by how uh, sometimes our historical our collective historical memory sort of polishes over some of the not so great things you know the more violent acts yeah Uh, yeah and um i I, i'm wondering if you can give us some some insights i suppose it 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 just boils down to fear uh and i'm uh, that uh you know that that there isn't an understanding of of uh how uh oppression can then become (laughs) so oppressive that uh, it does erupt in violence. And while none of us condone violence, we need to be able to appreciate it. Is, is that a fair statement? Um, so I appreciate it in what 
what I, I'm not sure that I understand the last part of the. Oh, the, the yeah, appreciate probably you know shows that my limited vocabulary. Um, uh, appreciate where such anger comes from, and that as human beings, uh, that 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 anger and frustration can erupt in ways that uh, are negative, instead of just just sort of casting a movement or an idea. Uh, uh, aside, I mean, for instance, there were there there was uh, after the the uh, the riots this spring in uh, in Baltimore, there was such concern that uh, there was going to be a backlash. You know that it was just uh, you know that the people who were rioting were somehow uh, wrong or bad or you know we were they were being judged instead of looking at the deeper issue. Oh, okay, I understand what you're saying. Um, uh, when talking about that type of uprising. I think about King's quote that um, it's, it's resurfaced, but largely it was kind of left out of the narrative of how we understood King. King has been whitewashed, but um, he said, violence is the language of the oppressed. And I think when we look at up- uprisings, we have to think about what causes them what what's the what are the ingredients to cause something to boil over to that effect where violence erupts and i think when we reframe our understanding of um violence or uprisings in that way it's more productive we begin to see the problems the problems emerge when we look at you know the the politi- the political, social, and economical climates that cause those uprisings. But on the flip side, um, when I think about violence, and this is what a lot of my studies has been on, is that you know, particularly civil rights workers, they faced a tremendous amount of violence. I I think, and that is something that has been whitewashed as we've gone through. Uh, you know, teaching and exhibiting the civil rights movement. We don't talk about James Meredith being shot after or during the March Against Fear. We don't talk about um, bloody Lowndes in Alabama, in Lowndes County, where the majority of the citizens were black, but they were uh, they were afraid to vote because of white terror. We don't talk about that. We don't talk about the ways that violence has really, um, or vigilante justice has stalled civil and human rights in this country. So uh, that's why I asked you for clarification. That's uh, what I've been thinking about when I've I've been um, learning about violence and understanding violence. Uh, and thank you, and thank you for pushing me to uh, to clarify my my thoughts as well. Uh, it, it sounds as if it's a uh, it's a looking deeper and being empathetic. Yeah, and you know that's one of the core values I think of museums. That's what that's our mission. That's what we're supposed to do. It's, we're supposed to. Ex- be civically engaged, um, encourage civic discourse, 
but help people connect to ideas and other people that they normally can't access. And that's, that's what we're supposed to do. That's why we are here. That's our purpose. And I think when we are able to do that, when museums are able to connect experiences and um, connect people, that brings about empathy, that brings about understanding and that's what we were seeking to do. That's the great thing about museums when it's done right. <laughs> well, thank you very much, uh, Aaliyah. I, I can't, uh, uh, I can't improve upon that uh, statement. And I hope uh, all of our listeners, but particularly uh, uh, listeners who are black or brown uh, and are thinking about a museum career or have a museum background, uh, uh, perhaps this is your time. Uh, so the field needs you, uh, and perhaps uh, uh, by building uh, uh, better inclusive teams within the museum, we can do a better job of uh, of, of providing that uh, that history that builds empathy. Um, I hope so. And yes. uh, and and Aaliyah, you are a major uh, shining star in that effort. And so, thank you for all of the work you do, your activism, uh, your your scholarship, uh, your museum practice, and for sharing it all with us. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Uh, and we will be uh, back next week with another edition of Museum Life. Uh, again, it's always a pleasure to talk with all of you. Uh, and uh, with that, have a wonderful Halloween. Uh, and this is Carol Bossert from Museum Life. We'll be back. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. <laughs>